You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. When it comes to ancient mythical species of Earth, there is a vast array of strange beings, hairy monsters, and half-human enigmas, encountered and documented by early naturalists, historians, and adventurers, those traversing remote areas of an unexplored world. But despite the interest in those creatures lurking in dense jungles, forests, and caves, it is the world's oceans and seas that seem to have maintained a very special place in the hearts and imaginations of humans. For thousands of years, mankind's relationship with the water has led to spectacular legends and encounters. The mighty kraken, the bizarre sea monk, massive serpents, giant sharks, and other unidentified mysteries of nature. But to many cultures, none are as common or as strange as entities known as mermaids. Creatures that can be traced back to mythology and belief from some of the earliest established human civilizations, and encountered by some of the most famous explorers and naturalists in history. But could such creatures exist in the vast unknown expanses of untraversed waters? Or are mermaids a part of something much greater in the progression of our history as humans? On this episode of Into the Portal, we are joined by our good friend, Dr. Shay Conger, a specialist in marine mammal behavioral ecology, to chat sightings, stories, physical descriptions, and more, as we delve deep beneath the waves, searching for mermaids. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are back with a brand new episode for you guys, but we've got a special guest with us tonight. Hey, Andrew? We do indeed. Yay. So excited to announce that we have one of our listeners, a supporter of the show, someone we've become really good friends with over the last little while. Let's welcome Dr. Shay Conger to the show. Hey, Shay, how's it going? Hey, Amber and Andrew, how are you guys doing? Oh, we're great. Awesome. We are really <laughs> excited to have you on. It's kind of been a long time coming now. It's uh, how long mm. have we been prepping this? A, a little while, a couple months anyway. Yep. Yeah, before the COVID times. Yeah, before <laughs> yeah. things got real crazy. Ugh, yeah. Ugh. Let's not even get into that. But um, we just want to start off with this show. We're getting into mermaids and you work in the field of marine biology. So we just would like you to give a little intro on yourself, your background, and ultimately your interest in mermaids. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm, in, I'm in essence a marine ecologist. I study marine mammals and their behavior and how they interact with their environment. So I... Uh, 
started my career out in veterinary science, looking at animal medicine, and then transitioned to wildlife science. I started my master's degree in 2010 doing marine mammal biology and finished that and my PhD by the end of 2018 and studied um, specifically uh, small species of steel on the west coast of the United States. So I've always been interested in not only marine science, but also folklore um, and other strange topics, I guess. So when I was an undergrad, I also completed a self-designed minor in literature where I looked at non-Western literature with kind of a focus on folklore and uh, social traditions. So things like mermaids have always interested me because they tie in what we see as hard science and biological animals with human emotions and perceptions about the ocean and our natural world. Totally. Mm. And oh man, you're definitely the perfect person to have on this episode. That's for sure. <laughs> that's really cool uh, that you were interested in folklore back in university too. And you kind of like dabbled in that. That's really awesome. Yeah. You know, I think now would probably be the best time for us to just get into the classic definition of mermaids just to kind of kick off the episode. And you're definitely the person to ask. So why don't you give us the classic definition of mermaids? Oh boy. Well, I would say uh, broadly, there really isn't a classic definition. I think that that definition changes as we move through um, history. So uh, what I would say, I guess, in my end is a mermaid is a personification of our both our ties to and our fears of the ocean. And I think that morphs periodically depending on where our social perspectives are at the time. It's especially unique when we kind of bounce around the globe and see the sort of different iterations of what you're mm -hmm. talking about, which gets especially bizarre depending on where you are, whether it's Japan or in the United States, for example. And we're going to kind of get into all that today. I guess I'll just sort of like, I mean, in my mind, the sort of typical, I guess, if we could try to sort of stab at a classical definition would be, you know, half fish creatures, essentially sort of half typically uh, female, right? Like half uh, woman, half fish. And always existing in seafaring cultures because they're obviously on the ocean and these uh, these creatures are being misidentified, possibly. I, I think that's probably where you'd be leaning, but we'll kind of get into that as we go here. But of course, the torso of a human, the tail of a fish instead of legs, and subtle different sort of versions of that, mm -hmm. I guess. Amber, did you want to add anything to that? Well, I just want to say that they're there have been cases of mermen as well. Oh, <laughs> definitely. Just mermaids. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. Typ typically female, but of course, mermen for sure. And it is very interesting because you do get these uh, variations, right? Like, uh, I guess classically, we would define them as beautiful, especially in like, say, if you're looking towards the Greek definition, that type of thing. Uh, we do get more monstrous definitions as well. Definitely. A lot of times are almost like sirens where they lure people to their deaths. They're kind of uh, similar in used in those sorts of ways. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Well, let's just dive right into this because mermaids are just flat out in my mind, one of the most bizarre phenomena in history. You know, one of these mythological, mythological creatures that is especially, it's kind of like the minotaur, I guess it kind of falls in those camps of, of hybrid, these, um, mm -hmm. I guess chimeras, you might call them sort of in a way, like these they're just manimals. these weird hybrids, manimals, sure. <laughs> there you go. Because unlike straight up cryptids that are probably a little bit more believable, potentially, obviously we're dealing with something a little bit more fantastical here. So mm -hmm. we wanted to kick it, things off as far as sightings and sort of background 
as far as mermaids go, with a pretty infamous person, a pretty infamous sighting. And uh, I loved your little comment here in the notes, Shay, that you thought this was one of your favorites because it's pretty hilarious. That is Christopher Columbus. So... <laughs> 1493. So he's a year into the classic 1492 voyage over into the New World, and he ended up describing in his notes, seeing specifically three ugly, quote unquote here, mermaids in and around the Dominican Republic. So it kind of goes as follows. Uh, On January 9th, 1493, Christopher Columbus was sailing off the coast of the Dominican Republic when he saw what he believed to, (laughs) to be not one, not two, but three mermaids swimming in the water. And he was absolutely serious, spoke with conviction about what he saw that day. So not half as beautiful (laughs) as they are painted is the quote. What do you make of this first little Christopher Columbus? Because obviously you had heard of it before. Yeah, well, I think I think the beauty in that is you can just hear the disappointment in his voice. You know, well, they weren't (laughs) half as beautiful as they've been painted, you know, and I I guess I can see his disappointment there. Um, But this is pretty well interpreted uh, just based on where he was, uh, that these were likely mermaids. And frankly, I think it's kind of just adorable to think about three, three manatees. Um, oh, did I say, did I say mermaids? <laughs> well, dang it. Um, no, uh, pretty well considered to be manatees. And I just love picturing right. three manatees bobbing along, eating some, you know, sea lettuce or something and a bunch of disappointed explorers looking down at them uh because they're certainly not your classic idea of a beautiful mermaid (laughs) yeah (laughs) i i I love that you just kind of pointed out he would have been disappointed i mean everyone would have been expecting the uh the quintessential sort of beautiful mermaid to fall in love with i guess Mm -hmm, the long-haired luscious maiden (laughs) (laughs) but what's interesting though is like sightings do go back much much further and i'm you know Way back, further than we're even going to go today specifically, but I did want to at least mention some of the ancient stuff because, you know, belief in sort of creatures like this goes back potentially even into sort of like Paleolithic times, you know what I mean? Like some people even point to the Cave of Swimmers, which we mentioned in our Zerzura episodes, as showing some things that don't seem to be entirely human per se, but that is completely a a fallacy. It's just depictions of people swimming with their legs together that sort of looks like it might be a singular uh, fin or or flipper or whatever you want to call it. Or maybe they're depicted in a dive motion too, so that would be like very streamlined. Exactly Mm -hmm. right. But that being said, one of the earliest mentions of mermaids dates back to Assyrian legends from in and around 1000 BCE. And according to these tales, there was a goddess by the name of, probably going to butcher this, uh, Atargatis, Atargatis, who transformed herself into a mermaid out of uh, shame after accidentally killing her mortal lover. So this mythology would end up spreading all over Greece and Rome as obviously, you know, history would progress. But curiously, mermaids have been connected with a lot of carnage. And this was sort of the first example of that in my mind, this idea that it's either a curse or the mermaids in and of themselves would potentially cause a curse. Uh, And they are associated with hazardous events in European, African and Asian culture, including like floods, storms, shipwrecks, you know, drownings and other sort of disasters like this. So this is a very, very different sort of perception overall uh, throughout history than what we think of today. I think of like the Little Mermaid being this sort of Mm -hmm. not a harbinger of death, so to speak. But we're going to come back to the idea of omens in a little bit. But before we jump right into the next section, I guess I would at least ask you, Shay, have you, what's your sort of idea? What do you think about mermaids as omens and like harbingers of doom in human history? 
Yeah, well, I think what I get from my experiences at sea, even in the 21st century, is that it can be pretty miserable uh, when you're out on the water, even with today's best technology. Earlier in you know the, the modern human era, when we really started undertaking seafaring and trade and uh, whaling and ocean harvest, that life was pretty pretty rough. Uh, You didn't have good forms of communication. So you're dealing with people who are sometimes in pretty miserable environments, cut off from society completely in, you know, the most powerful of ways, no communication to the outside world, and really a really faint grasp on science for a lot of things that they were experiencing. So naturally, it really makes sense that mermaids under that construct were potential reasons for people going missing or strange sightings of animals that you didn't understand. And if you were to link them with the ocean, it would make sense that they would be pretty unforgiving, hauntingly tempting, yet dangerous beings. Right. (laughs) No, that definitely makes sense. sense. Can we just touch on one little interesting nugget for a second here uh shay Mm -hmm. actually just what you said just now just really reminded me like obviously yeah like early days of seafaring peoples and peoples getting on ships for long voyages these were crews of men they were generally not women so it kind of makes sense that they would dream up or imagine per se like a female counterpart that is equally seductive and equally dangerous (laughs) right just to you know kind of keep their imaginations busy. And and you have to add on too, because we've actually been listening to a couple podcasts on the Franklin expeditions, and those were obviously <sighs> quite later on. But there were these ideas that the food they were eating, the tinned food, it was spoiled. It, it basically made them delusional to a certain degree. So I'm honestly going back to the first, the Christopher Columbus, the manatees, and him like kind of being delusional. I mean, like, these are women? Like... <laughs> know what I mean? Like that could possibly explain some sightings. Yeah. And I think to add to that, you know, I've, I've been on the ocean and essentially run out of food and water, you know, which is way less dangerous now because you can just go get more. But I can only begin to imagine being at, on the ocean at that time. L- like, let's say you were a, a, one of the bigger whaling ships. You were out there for 100, 200 days at a time without seeing shore Jeez. You may have been shanghaied. You may be. You may have been extremely hungover when you woke up on the deck of a ship, and yeah, you're with a bunch of guys. And there's when you're on a boat. Quite honestly, the the two things you look forward to are sleeping and meals. Um, so especially if you are on a ship where the food itself is tainted or lacking, I mean that's. I think we all are kind of feeling that now, just being at home, just magnify that times about, you know, a hundred. No kidding. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of, uh, it's, it's prime ingredients for some interesting stories to come out, I suppose. (laughs) And interesting stories we have for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) We're going ancient as always on Into the Portal, uh, starting off with Pliny the Elder for our sort of uh, more antiquated tales revolving around these strange sea creatures. And so Pliny the Elder, probably a lot of you are familiar with this guy. He's a Roman scholar from the first century CE, and he wrote about a lot of strange things. And 
One in particular was a form of mermaid that was known as nereids. And these are also referred to as sea nymphs. Um, in classical Greek mythology, though, the nereids were the 50 daughters of Nereus and Doris. They were also sisters to their brother, Nereides, who was a minor sea deity. And nereids are per- particularly associated with the Aegean Sea. Uh, and they also dwell with their father, Nereus, in the depths of a golden palace under the sea. Instantly, that reminded me of The Little Mermaid. But essentially, Pliny the Elder uh, describes these creatures in his one of his books, uh, A Natural History. It's, he goes on to say, The portion of the body that resembles the human figure is still rough all over with scales. For one of these creatures was seen upon the same shores, and as it died, its plaintive murmurs were heard even by the inhabitants at a distance. So he's describing these things washing up on the shores. And he also claimed that these washed up dead in great numbers, an event reported at the highest levels, so it was said. And these corpses of the Nereids that washed up on the French shores uh, were so notable that even the governor of Gaul once wrote a letter to Emperor Augustus about the issue. And this is another quote from Pliny. It says here, The legatus of Gaul, too, wrote word to the late Emperor Augustus that a considerable number of Nereids had been found dead upon the seashore. I have, too, some distinguished informants of equestrian rank who state that they themselves once saw in the ocean of Gades a seaman which bore in every part of his body a perfect resemblance to a human being, and that during the night he would climb up into the ships, upon which the side of the vessel, where he seated himself, would instantly sink downward, and if he remained there any considerable time, it would even go underwater. So he's a fatty. Very strange. <laughs> so this is an interesting little take here, and in the more classical tales, it seems like the Nereids can have feet or tails, or they are depicted with these like squid-like appendages, like tendrils almost. Interesting. However, in more modern times, the term has been applied to nymphs, uh, fairies, and mermaids. So there's kind of a plethora of creatures there. Broad strokes. Yeah. So, Shay, we're kind of curious as to how we could interpret these ancient writings of these creatures, mermaids, Nereids, whatever you want to call them. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, I mean, I would say, you know, of some of the few people in history that I would love to either follow around or just have a beer with, it would definitely be Pliny the Elder, (laughs) because he's got some stories, man. Like, he's just, his stuff is just so great. Um, You know, and I don't know, it's so hard to go back and really get into the heads of, of that time period, you know, the folks that are recording these accounts. And like you said, the Amber, the, the Nereids or the Nereids, um, they really change form a lot, but they do have in a lot of ways, that same kind of folkloric personality of the fairy folk where they're kind of a secondary deity. They're, they're children or daughters of a greater deity, you know, and they're mm-hmm. mischievous and remote, and sometimes they pop up for people who happen to, you know, land on the wrong shore and find these. So I don't know. This is a really interesting mm-hmm. account of finding them washing up on, on the shores. And I'm not as familiar with, you know, the backstory on that, but that's something that would be really interesting to look into. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess... Pretty fantastical, eh? <laughs> yeah. And I think just a modern parallel to that um, are the fact that we have mass stranding events of marine mammals throughout all of the oceans and seas. And depending on, you know, what washed up and 
what condition they were in. I mean, it could be a really tragic uh, example of something like that happening. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, like just a just mass misidentification with some sort of sea creature that hadn't been identified yet in the first century that, yeah, just tragically ended up dying off in mass numbers that just looked really strange. I don't know what Mm -hmm. creature that might be, but Hmm. uh, yeah, definitely. Kind of reminds me of the Okapogo, hey, when we covered that one and there was that strange, weird, unidentified fish and people thought it was a baby Okapogo for the longest time and then it ended up being something very, very... uh, it ended up plain. just being like a, a yeah, it was like, like a, a baby sturgeon, a or malformed or... sturgeon or something. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of sort of like just eels and weird creatures in general, I don't know why that just reminds me of just monsters and creatures of Japan because that's where we're heading <gasps> next, which is just sort of creeping up a little bit more recent in history. We're about uh, eleven hundred years after Pliny here, in and around twelve twenty two, uh, in ancient Japan. So. Very much like the sort of uh, the ominous harbingers of death type mermaids, that's kind of what they got going on in ancient Japan. So not the typical mermaids we think of as these beautiful creatures luring sailors to their deaths. In ancient Japan, they are still fish-like creatures in appearance, right? But they have pointy teeth, like noticeably pointy teeth in the description, sometimes even menacing horns. And here we go, purported to have mystical abilities. So this is not cryptozoological like Pliny writing about in a natural history book washing up on the shore, mm-hmm. a little bit more fantastical. So according to legend, on April 14th, 1222, there was a mermaid that washed ashore in Hakata Bay. So this is on the Japanese island of Kyushu. And shortly after, there was a local shaman who observed this and generally thought it was positive, proclaimed that the mermaid was a good omen for the island, and they took the bones and ended up burying them at this temple, so the uh, Ukamoto Temple. And... People worship these bones, essentially. They took to calling the place Ryugjo, which in Japanese folklore translates to the uh, undersea palace of the dragon god, Mm. which I thought was kind of interesting. I probably butchered that pronunciation, but anyway. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Today, only six of these bones that were collected remain at this temple, which is now officially called, like I said, this uh, this special name that I'm not going to mispronounce again. And they can be seen. It's not like a tourist attraction that you can just walk into, per se, but you can apparently make an appointment to go and take a look at these bones, which generally appear sort of smooth and glossy. Like, we'll we'll include some some links so you guys can check it out, or you can Google it for sure. But where exactly the bones came from is unknown. So as far as I know, they have been allowed to be studied. Some of them are just unidentifiable, I guess, and others are most likely just sort of mismatched bones from other sea creatures in the area but of course people believe that this was a this was a mermaid Shay have you heard of this story before you know I had not heard of this particular account um I've heard of a few other accounts that were more um based on actual remains or um kind of uh, taxidermied mermaids that are across various shrines shrines in Japan. But I love the whole concept of the Japanese mermaid because, like you said, it's usually this very menacing, kind of shadowy type being, which I think fits in kind of with the Hokai phenomenon that they have in Japan. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so there are are a lot of accounts. Yeah, it's just really interesting because – Japan certainly has more of a nature-based kind of religious structure that remains through today, and so mermaids fit perfectly into that that concept. 
And I really want to go see this because it just sounds absolutely bizarre. And we had a friend who was living in Japan Uh and we didn't know about this when he was there. We totally could have got him to go check it out. Dang it. Uh, Hindsight. There is another one though that I wanted to mention because it's very similar. Like you said, there's a ton of these across Japan. So this is an enshrined mermaid mummy, the Tenshu Kyosha shrine for this mummy. So reportedly 1400 years old. So right kind of in and around the same time period of the last one we were talking about. And could be the first of what's sort of known as Fiji mermaids or essentially what look to be like vivisected, put together like taxidermy, tax, yeah. like you just like you were just <laughs> talking about their shit. But according to the story, the mermaid first appeared to Prince Shotoku at Lake Biwa, which is the largest freshwater lake in the Shinga prefecture. So this is northeast of Kyoto. And it's known for its beauty and splendor, right? Abundance of fish and migratory birds and wetlands and things sort of teen it up to be a place where something could potentially hide. And I'm air quoting here because this is an audio show. (laughs) But with its last breaths, when this thing, I guess, was uh, speaking to the prince, it told the story of its origins. And I just thought this was so creepy. It harkens back to the whole omens thing. So this quote unquote miserable creature had at one point been a fisherman who had trespassed into protected waters off the coast. And because of this sort of like treachery, essentially, was transformed into this hideous beast as punishment by whatever sort of deities were watching over the island, essentially, and left to lurk the waters uh, as a warning for those in the future. Mm. So kind of like the, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's almost like a reverse Little Mermaid, like the original like Hans Christian Andersen version of it. That's interesting. We should write the screenplay. Reverse Little Mermaid. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Shay, what are your thoughts on that myth? I love it. I I think it's just like what Amber said. It's so interesting because it is this kind of like harbinger of, of doom, you know, or, or, you know, kind of a paradigm of of talking about I guess what happens when you when you poach mm-hmm. a natural yeah. resource, I guess. It's a it's really cool. And it's a really dark story too, because when you think about it, you know, it's telling this tale and then it dies and then essentially is preserved and put into the shrine. I can't remember if this one was one that you can still see today. Do you know? Ooh, good question. Oh, I can't remember. As I as far as I remember in the research, I think it is. But don't quote me on that. I'll have to check. Yeah, I seem to remember that either it is or something similar is, but they're not sure if it's the original. But yeah, maybe we should just do a tour. I think we're going to have to. (laughs) We're going to have to do a World Mermaid tour. Yeah, sounds great. We'll get the funding for it eventually. Yeah, once all this stuff blows over, we can actually go travel. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of jumping up another roughly 800 years here for this next account. Uh, Yeah. Kind of interesting getting into our first sort of, or not our first, but uh, more modern European account. Mm -hmm. This comes from a man named Henry Hudson in 1608. So Henry was actually a mariner and a 16th century explorer born in England, disappeared in 1611. This guy Hudson was among a long list of explorers who searched in vain for a northern passage through the Arctic waters from Europe to East Asia. He made four voyages uh, historians are aware of, which occurred in 1607, 1608, 1609, and the very last, which was the 1610 to 11. His first known voyage, 1607, in the Hopewell, with a crew of 12. The voyage was associated with Sir Thomas Smith, who was a leading figure of the East India Trading Company. Mm-hmm. And this was his very first attempt to find a passage. Of course, he was unsuccessful. So again, in the second voyage in 1608, he... This was about, this was near Norway, and it was in the summertime. It was June 15th. He reported in his private log, this is a quote, 
This morning, one of our company looked overboard and saw a mermaid, and calling up some of the company to see her, one or more came up, and by that time, she was close to the ship's side, looking earnestly upon the men. A little after, a sea came up and overturned her. From the navel upward, her back and breasts were like a woman's, but her body as big as one of us. Her skin was very white, with long black hair hanging down her back. When the mermaid finally went down under the waves, her tail was observed, which was that like a porpoise speckled like a mackerel. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. End quote. So speckled like a mackerel. What do we make of that? Because normally you just see scales or, or, or described scales. Yeah. So obviously like this isn't in the Dominican where I don't think there's going to be any manatees in this area. And you can comment on that, Shay. What do you make of this sort of northern in and around Norway type report? Well, I I have to say this has got to be one of the best historical mermaid sightings. I love that it's a firsthand account by an explorer in his log, which is pretty amazing. Um, and the fact that uh, it's such a unique description. So I don't know. It's, it's really interesting that, um, like you said, it wasn't a scaled type of tale. Uh, there's a really clear description of kind of human-like features. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. This is one of those great ones that I, I can say, I, you know, I don't, I have nothing to, to give you on the science <laughs> end, but it's just so fantastic. There are marine mammals in the Arctic uh, that can be somewhat smaller. For example, there are things like beluga whales and right. the majestic walrus and all that. You know, and from a a science point of view, something that is interesting and I guess a little bit sad is we had all of these expectations for the Northwest Passage, you know, back in the 16, 1700s. Um, And I will say right now, something that's going on in terms of ocean exploration is the fact that we now have a Northwest Passage because of sea ice loss. So I, I and a number of colleagues are working on things like ecological projects and ocean exploration uh, because the new reality is that, uh, yay, we did it. We finally have a Northwest Passage. I just, I don't know <laughs> if that's a good thing, so. If only uh, if only the Franklin Expedition crew could know that now. Hey? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just wait about 150 years, or when did that actually take place again? Oh, 18? gosh, I mean, it's in the 1600s. But speaking of that i mean henry himself sort of meets a grim end which which sort of harkens back to this idea mm-hmm. of mermaids being omens right and yeah. uh, i think some people would lean on the fact that he did meet this grim end that he did actually see mermaids because they're of course harbingers of doom perhaps if you're if you're a believer right so amber what exactly happened to this the guy? thing is too Okay, I'll tell the story first. So he did disappear along with his son and seven other companions, and they were set adrift in a small boat, a dinghy, after a mutiny on the St. James Bay in June of 1611. So this was in his fourth voyage, not the second one. So he actually went on two more successful voyages, right, before Mm -hmm. this happened. So again, yeah, this does bring up the idea of mermaids as omens, as uh, purveyors of negative things to come or that type of thing. However, I will say it seemed like it was a little bit uh, delayed in this case. Yeah. No, I would agree with that for sure. Mm -hmm. Did you have something else that you wanted to say there before I ever? I was just, I was going back to his description and the tale, right? So he talks about how it was like that of a porpoise. And if I'm not mistaken, a porpoise is a marine mammal. Uh, Could you clarify that, Shay? 
So porpoises are small marine mammals. They're similar to dolphins in a lot of ways. Uh, but okay. fun fact, the, they are different in that they have differently shaped teeth. So porpoises have oh. flat little spoon-shaped teeth, and dolphins have uh, kind of pointy teeth. That's just based on the diet? Yeah, based on the diet and how they... So porpoises tend to be a little more solitary, so they don't hang out in huge pods as much. And dolphins, mm. there's a ton of different, different species, but they're a lot more social. Okay. Gotcha. And then on that note, too, like, are they speckled? Are there any species that are speckled <laughs> at all? Or? Yeah, I was trying to think. And um, there's definitely ones with spots and patterns. Uh, well, I guess wouldn't say spots, but we call it counter coloring or counter shading, where they have a mm. lighter bottom so that a predator from or a prey looking up at them from the bottom of the ocean doesn't see them. But if they look down, they have darker backs so that uh, they're also invisible in that way. Uh, we, up in Norway, what you would expect of a speckled marine mammal would be probably an ice-dwelling seal species, so like a spotted or ring seal, which are also pretty adorable. <laughs> it's such a weird juxtaposition, though, too, because we're talking about so many cute animals. But then on the flip side, it's like this idea of obviously the omens. And I don't want to go too, too far into it, but I did have another little section. I wanted to mention a couple other interesting things because I did find reference to an, a really old Norse text from around the 13th century. And it talked about uh, this thing called the King's Mirror, which basically describes a mermaid living off the coast of Greenland that acted as a specific omen. So that was very prominent in the north. Uh and we find it all, all all over the world, too. And it was described as having soft hair, webbed hands, a very frightening, menacing face to kind of like scare people away and would always appear before big storms. So, yeah, classic, very much like we've been talking about this whole time. A little bit more specific would be the case of the Zimbabwe mermaids. We're not going to get into that today because it deserves its own episode <laughs> in and of itself. And the Kryptonaut podcast actually did a really good episode on that. You guys should go check out. But that was a case of like a few boys being essentially one of them pulled under the water in a dam by a mermaid. A uh, little more specific, a mm -hmm. little more weird. So we're going to save that one for another day. Maybe maybe we can get you back on the uh, back on the show <laughs> for that one, Shay. Yeah, and Zimbabwe has a number of incredible um, cryptid or sea monster type categories. There's also another creature called the Nyami Nyami, uh, which is a serpent-like creature that inhabits a lake there. And locals actually have a necklace that they wear in respect to this animal because it's said to essentially attack, attack those who don't uh, give it due respect. So yeah, they've got some gnarly critters there. Okay, we're officially mm. doing an entire Zimb Zimbabwe cryptozoology series with you. That's going to be <laughs> Absolutely. awesome. Can't wait. Sweet. I think now is probably a good time to just jump onto another figure because it's kind of one that everyone's going to know and oh, it's pretty yeah. hilarious. Well, uh, we've mentioned Little Mermaid. There's <laughs> yeah. another guy in this episode that is loosely associated with another Disney movie. We're going to Pocahontas <laughs> <laughs> for <Yeah>. John Smith. <laughs> and this is a really strange one. It comes from the West Indies, uh, dates back to 1614. And yes, this is the John Smith. Before he had, quote unquote, discovered the new world, that's huge air quotes, um, <laughs> the new world, there's a story that exists that's a little bit sketchy, but we're going to get into it anyway. So apparently Smith encountered a sexy mermaid in 1614, <laughs> yeah. and he had this to say, quote, swimming with all possible grace near the shore. It was, I'm assuming. 
The upper part of her body resembled that of a woman. She had large eyes, rather too round, a finely shaped nose, a little too short, well-formed ears, rather too long. And her green hair imparted to her an original character by no means unattractive. But from below the waist, the woman gave way to the fish. <laughs> gave way to the fish. Gave way to the fish. Yeah. It's like, whoa, and just don't look down. <laughs> Waist up only. Right. Uh, there are some massive problems with this story, starting with the fact that researchers actually can't find anything in Smith's personal writings speaking to this encounter. Uh, there is no evidence as well that Smith was ever in the West Indies in this time period. It was about almost a decade prior to that, so mm -hmm. 1607 versus 1614. And the story itself seems to be sourced from an article in the 19th century newspaper called the Gazette of the Union. So a sensationalized story and using someone that everyone would have known, right? John Smith. Potentially. Potentially. So height of yellow journalism. Come on, let's be real here. <laughs> so this was dated to 1849, September 19th. So what do we make of this description? Did John Smith actually see something weird? It, to me, in my mind, it's odd how he describes all the features as slightly off as if it's like this imperfect imitation. Yeah, it's like a beauty contest. Like he's making judgments. He's ticking <laughs> yes. it down on his little he's sheet there. He's being a jerk, man. A I don't like bit. it. I think, I think Shay's got some, uh, some, some things to say to that point of John Smith being a jerk. What do you make of John Smith? Shay? Yeah, well, allegedly. Um, <laughs> I guess I didn't know him. But, you know, I mean, let's stop with the, with the, the uh, women shaming comments here. Am I right? Like all these, all no, these no. mermaid descriptions are like, well, they just weren't up to my par. Um, yeah, seriously. Fine. You try to exist in the ocean, you know, beyond that. Yeah. I read up a little on John Smith and I've always kind of known some background stories about how he was a bit of a jerk, but I, I found this article and I, I really loved it. It, uh, one of the things it said is he, first of all, supposedly, defeated and I think beheaded three Turks in single-handed combat uh, before he moved to the Americas. Um, but he was really well known for exaggerating stories and his adventures. He was he was one of those cults of personality that yeah. seems larger in life because he probably self-promoted quite a bit. I think one of my favorite stories is that he was so irritating to the folks on his voyage to the Americas that they chained him below deck. Um, he was this kind of shorter guy, like five foot four, red hair, does not look like the animated version at all. So they chained him below deck and he continued to shout insults to them for the entirety of the journey. And when they finally hit shore, they opened up this envelope that kind of dictated how they were to start the colony. And I think largely to everyone's disappointment, John Smith was supposed to head up the colony. So I'm sure they were totally uh, dis you know, disappointed when that happened. And I, I guess it, yeah. it got to a point where they, they almost voted to throw him overboard on the way. <laughs> And then we wouldn't have had Pocahontas. Or, or his mermaid sighting. Well, I guess that was before. But yeah, maybe he could have become a mermaid. We don't know. Oh. Oh, that yeah. That would have been a better <laughs> the first mermaid. Story. Yeah. That's crazy, though. So they literally opened up the envelope once they landed on shore. That sounds like a crazy version of, like, <laughs> antiquated, like, survivor, yeah. like, you know, like, family feud <laughs> where you open up the envelope. You're like, all right, guys, well, this is what we're doing, I guess. I don't know what I signed up for, but here we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like a reality show. Well, are we ready to jump ahead about 100 years to the 20th century, Andrew? I think I'm ready to get into yeah. the 20th century. Because we've got some really cool like wartime sightings and things like that, and a few more accounts in between, but we're sticking to the juicy stuff for you guys for this episode. However, 
Uh, let's just break for a quick word from our sponsor. You know, you guys, this is a strange and uneasy world we live in at the best of times, especially right now. And we know that a lot of you listening, like Amber and I, have all kinds of different things in our lives that can interfere with happiness. Like, honestly, just take a second and think about what might be troubling you the most or what might be holding you back from achieving who you want to be. Like for myself, I struggle with anger and especially when something doesn't go right. And this leads to a lot of anxiety for me on top of already feeling out of control. But it's not always easy to just talk to anyone, let alone book an appointment and sit in a waiting room. Then we got connected with BetterHelp. So convenient and easy. Yeah, we were both blown away that over 800,000 people are using BetterHelp.com to take care of their mental health based on their unique needs. You can connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment. This is not self-help. It is professional counseling with specialists in everything from depression, trouble sleeping, helping members of the LGBT community, and so much more. Schedule video or phone sessions with your BetterHelp counselor or send a message anytime, day or night. You can even switch therapists at any time based on your specific needs. But the best part about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional in-person counseling and it's convenient to access from anywhere in the world. We want you all to live happier and healthier lives. And as a listener of Into the Portal, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com portal. That's betterhelp.com portal. And financial assistance is available for those who qualify as well. So visit betterhelp.com portal to get started today. You can find a link in our show notes below. And we're back. So... Yeah, we're, we're heading uh, forward in time a little bit here into wartime Indonesia, which is kind of interesting. I didn't really expect to come across this when I was looking into mermaids at all. But the weird thing about this is it's kind of, kind of a mermaid, kind of not. It's just sort of aquatic humanoid, which I guess dabbles. In. There's this blurring of lines here. <laughs> but essentially, this is how the story goes. So there is a creature known in Indonesia called the orang akan. So essentially meaning man fish. And we've come across this term before, like mm-hmm. the orang pendek, little mm-hmm. man of the forest, things like this. And it has been reported in the waters around the islands of Indonesia for centuries. But one particular account is particularly interesting. So this began circulating, uh, circulating rather, uh, in the decades following the Second World War. So this is featuring some Japanese soldiers who were occupying what was essentially Dutch East India, or the Dutch East Indies, rather, during the war. And specifically, they were stationed on the Key Islands. So that's Key, K-E-I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Key Islands, Key Islands. And they're located in the south southeastern part of the Maluka Islands of Indonesia, famous for being super remote, pristine, beautiful beaches, all this kind of stuff, right? Massive mangroves and things like this. So kind of perfect to see something that would have been hiding for most of the time, I guess you might say, because the soldiers would end up seeing something really strange on the beach. So they're stationed along this 555 square mile area of the island of this island chain. And over the course of the campaign, they allegedly came across several strange creatures that they could only describe as essentially mermaids, mermen, or generally bizarre aquatic humanoid beings. So the story goes that they're stationed as a surveillance team on a remote lagoon. And during this stint, the team reported seeing these strange creatures swimming in the water. They had limbs and the torso of what seemed to be like a human but the mouth of a fish, a giant gaping mouth, similar to like a carp, which was featuring 
sharp teeth <laughs> and generally appeared to be sort of an ominous creature. Weird. The overall description from the Mysterious Universe article I was looking at was typically described as being around 150 centimeters tall, having pink or salmon colored skin, as well as prominent spines or spikes uh, on its back and part of its head. <laughs> so before I get into the sightings, I just want to just ask, what do you guys make of that? Shay, what do you make of it? Have you heard of this account before? It's so interesting um, when you get into Indonesia and Southeast Asia, like you said, they, they do have all these accounts of, I guess you would call them orang beings or man beings. And to mm-hmm. add on to that is the orang utan, the orangutan also yeah, falls into that category. And I guess just as a side note, a few years ago, I had the real pleasure of sitting down at a campground and talking to John Bindernagel, who was an incredible ornithologist, and but he was also a, a researcher of cryptids, and it was just kind of a secondhand meeting, but it was really cool because he was well into his 70s, and he and his wife were planning to head to Indonesia to talk to people about the Orang Pindek, just to get more evidence, and I guess... To, from that naturalist perspective of local accounts. So it's it's cool that those stories continue today. This was in the 40s, but these types of things are still being reported. And I guess regardless of whether that's biological or cultural, I think it's so important to record these accounts and weigh them and listen to them and, and let them tell us something about, I guess, the society of different cultures around the world. So what Mm. strikes me about this, and it's funny having just talked about dolphins and porpoises, you know, and I'm not quite sure about Indonesia. I'm not as familiar with the the marine mammal life there, but there are a number of species of freshwater dolphins um, or river dolphins. We have the Yangtze River dolphin. We have the Amazonian uh, River dolphin. And those are really strange looking pink creatures with pointy little teeth who are also um, apparently quite friendly. So something to think about. Yeah, that easily could have been something that would have approached them or they could have approached it and actually seen it. Like, let's get into some of these sightings, I guess, on that note, because there were were reports that they actually saw multiples of these creatures playing, quote unquote, in lagoons. So that almost sounds kind of dolphin. Yeah, it does. Yeah. there was one, though, that was sort of the opposite of this uh, playful uh, sighting. They actually engaged one of the creatures in a report where there was a small patrol of some Japanese soldiers making their way through a really overgrown portion of jungle. And they ended up hacking their way into essentially what was a, a hidden little uh, hidden little lagoon. Uh, and they noticed that there was something in the water making noise kind of thrashing around. So the story continues on and says they approached and looked in the water and saw a strange uh, kind of coloration, like the pinkish color. And then this thing suddenly lurched out from, from beneath the water and pulled itself up onto a rock, a rocky outcropping kind of near the shore. Uh, so yeah, pinkish in color and having an ape or human-like features in appearance. So except for the fact that it was devoid of hair, obviously, because that wouldn't be very... It, apes obviously have hair. Hmm. Large gaping mouth like a fish. Uh, with arms that ended in webbed hands and claws. So they were obviously stunned at what they saw. But this is where it gets really interesting because this creature allegedly let out a gurgling, burping noise that they took as being uh, threatening, I guess. This must have been a pretty loud gurgling noise because right after this... A gurgle or a growl? A gurgle or a growl. (laughs) In the report I was reading, it was a gurgle. So right after this noise, another one, it's like as if it was calling to uh, one of its one of its fellow uh, mer creatures, per se, and it showed up 
And basically, they felt like they were being attacked because of this. So this is the quote from the Mysterious Universe article, because it's pretty interesting. As the second creature silently darted towards them, the one on the rock continued its background symphony of gurgling, throaty, coughing noises, and the men began to fire. The water erupted in spouts of water kicked up by the bullets, and uh, the fire was directed towards the rock as well. But shortly after this barrage, the creatures were gone, leaving the baffled troops there amidst the jungle noises wondering what they had just seen. So they obviously weren't able to hit any of these creatures. I guess dolphins could have swam away or we're dealing with things that have magical powers. Yeah, (laughs) interdimensional mermen. (laughs) Oh, it's just terrifying. I mean, there's something about an animal with a human face that is just the worst thing in the world to imagine. I don't know. I, I can say if... I would just be out of there. I don't even know if I'd be able to figure out what it was because I'd be so far away. Uh, Us too. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a great story. And it, even if it were something like, um, I mean, the only things that come to mind are like, you know, a lungfish or a giant salamander or something. I mean, that's just right. horrifying. Um, it is scary. There's a creature, I think, in the Congo. I could be totally wrong that you might you might want to look up. It's called the Buru. And uh, Lauren Coleman, I think did the intro to a book on the Buru, um, which is really interesting. It's kind of firsthand accounts, but very similar. It was an aggressive lizard-like animal that kept stealing children, and then supposedly they stoned it to death, and then it disappeared. But it kind of sounds like that. It does. It's very, very similar. Yeah, because you get the the inclusion of humanoid like arms and like limbs, like you know what I mean. Oh, so yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how this thing would actually look like. I know, right? I'm trying to picture <laughs> in my head. There was like at least in in some senses, though, it was interesting that it sort of matched up in terms of how it was behaving with the local beliefs, because essentially the local Indonesians would say they would describe them as being fiercely uh, territorial, right? And would attack right. if they were approached too closely in the tradition of the Orang Ikan. And actually it was the same thing with the Orang Pendek, that they would be very aggressive and would attack people if they felt threatened. There was another report with an actual name attached to it, because that was one of the things about all these accounts. It's like just sort of just Japanese soldiers, right? There's no names attached to them, but there was Sergeant Taro Horibo, who shows up in a bunch of articles here. I do need to triple, triple, triple check to make sure that this is a real human being. Um, (laughs) But by all accounts, it seems to be. And uh, the story basically goes... Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) He was basically, you know... In charge of these troops, and these sightings were taking place over a short period of time, but the reports were coming in from his from his guys. And then finally, because he wasn't really sure what to make of it, one of the local villagers, they basically, the, the, the chief of this village on the islands nearby, decided to present him with one. Basically, like, come and take a look at this. This is what you guys are seeing. You don't need to be, well, I guess you do need to be freaked out, but this is what you're <gasps> dealing with. This is what your men are seeing, right? And then this is the quote from him. So he goes into the nearby village where the fishermen had brought, essentially, a deceased uh, mermaid, <laughs> the orangutan, to the house. So he, he says, it was 160 centimeters tall had long, dark hair with a reddish tinge. His neck was covered in spikes. His face seemed, to the Japanese, a lot like a monkey, but with a wide fish mouth, with a lot of sharp teeth. Between the fingers and toes, a fishman's membranes were stretched, (laughs) and the body was dotted with strange growths that looked like algae. That's a different one. That's a new one that we haven't come across yet. So, I mean, we've kind of already talked a little bit about this, Shay, but, I mean, algae... Any, any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, 
I guess in theory, any animal that's hanging out in the mud and such like that could have, you know, kind of an algal outer layer to it. I'm trying to think, you know, even in the the tropical forest, when you think about sloths or something like that, slow moving animals, uh, sloths are often green because they have so much algae growing on them, uh, you know, and moss and such, uh, cause it's a perfect environment. Uh, right. but again, it, we're back to the, the black hair, which is so mm-hmm. strange. And mm-hmm. it's, it just keeps reminding me of like the ring, you know, oh, that, yeah, that, totally. oh, so yeah, it's a horrifying picture. Yeah. Uh-huh. Neck covered in spikes, eh? <laughs> <laughs> which could it's be a, it's gills. A, yeah. Oh, that's so maybe something amphibious, you know, like a large, again, like, um, you know, if you think of like the hellbender, what are those really large, terrifying salamanders? I don't, I don't know. I keep picturing in my head a dude dressed <laughs> in a dolphin suit. Like, you know what I mean? Cause like, you get the arms and legs sticking out, but then there's like this whole weird fish body going on. Like, I don't know what it seems <laughs> like it looks I like. No, I just, this is bizarre. This is yeah. definitely like a very loose definition of a mermaid. If you're going to call it that though. I, I would say so because it almost seems as if they're not describing a. It's more so an aquatic humanoid yeah, entity. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Which would that be more or less likely? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shay, let's get your professional opinion here. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think you can push the dial either way on that one. This one's definitely in the creepier category. I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I yeah. think that's a perfect transition for us to kind of like shift into an article that you wrote uh, that was really, really interesting. And maybe we could kind of just like touch on a few a few points on that. You you had a, an article in Deep Sea News and uh, it was really, really interesting. We loved it. It was kind of the catalyst for this this whole episode. Yeah, we'll include that in our show notes as well. And you had some pretty funny things to mention in that, the idea of essentially, uh, for example, constipated mermaids and sort of, uh, <laughs> some of the biological implications and things like that. Uh, did you want to just maybe speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you bet. You know, it's it's funny when you write things and put things on the internet because you never imagine where they might go. Um, and so this article, <laughs> you know, I wrote in uh, 2013 in October. I was doing some whale tagging off the California coast, and I just had some conversations with my friends who worked at the aquarium the week before, and we were all pretty distressed. I had worked there at the time as an educator, um, but we kept getting all of these inquiries after the Discovery Channel uh, mermaid docudrama, as they call it. Right. <laughs> and because it was presented as like a real documentary, people legitimately were asking us like what we thought about the mock- or the documentary that came out. And do you think Noah is hiding mermaids? That's the the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, right? Okay. Uh, which I can definitely say they are not um, hiding mermaids. <laughs> I'll just let's go out and say it because there's a lot of people working for very little money and a, a very high workload. And I don't. I think if there were mermaids, they would come out and say it because they would get so much funding. Um, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. but uh, so yeah, I was doing whale tagging and I was pretty exhausted and I kind of hammered this little article out for fun, just as a little educational piece of. You know, well, you know, here I am. I'm a kind of an evolutionary and physiological biologist. And if mermaids were to exist under everything that we know, what would they look like? You know, and it pointed out some things that I thought were pretty cute and funny. Like, well, how would its, you know, digestive system even work? Because mammal <laughs> digestive systems and fish digestive systems are totally different. You know, they're, we don't know where one starts and the other ends. So that probably wouldn't work. Right. <laughs> uh, um, 
you know, there's a lot of things that go into being a mammal on land, and there's a lot of things that go into being a mammal in the water. And so everything we know about mammals in the water does not match up at all with what you would expect from that classic kind of mermaid humanoid being. Um, Mm. But it was it was pretty funny when this article came out because I, of course, was in the field and then I wake up the next day, you know, and this is a little good little anecdote for anyone who thinks, you know, scientists are again, you know, there's conspiracies or scientists are overly dismissive of stuff. Uh, My university had somehow found the article that I'd written for, you know, essentially just a news blog. And it was on the front page of their today like newspaper that went out to like everyone at the university so I was getting all these calls and I actually felt terrible because it was above like actual research that people had done (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah I had NPR call me uh I talked to Nat Geo Live Science all these places wow that you know read this article that I just one-off wrote so I definitely learned from that in that I get why scientists can be pretty wary about stuff because you, uh, you one day you're, you know, on a hotel uh, at a hotel desk writing a story about constipated mermaids, and the next the next day NPR is asking you about it. So, yeah, fun. it was mm-hmm. pretty fun though. You never know what kind of ramifications or people you might end up talking to. Eh? I loved this article. This was just amazing, and I, I love how it's called fishful thinking. <laughs> I love a good pun. (laughs) Yeah. And probably my favorite quote from it was, well, there was a bunch, but one of the ones I pulled up here was, uh, you had this question. You're like, so you were talking about your, this was the first sort of like point, like they would freeze to death (laughs) because obviously like our human like body form isn't meant for surviving long periods in water. And then you make the question, you're like, so what would a cold, hearty mermaid look like? One, (laughs) really hairy, two, really fat, or three, both. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was trying to picture that in my head. I was like, ah, oh, definitely not those beautiful ones that were described in antiquity. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, I there's Columbus's disappointment right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah. We'll definitely have to post that for all of our listeners. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great piece. I really like that one. You know, talking about some of these sort of biological implications and stuff are of course things that like we mentioned a, a few minutes ago earlier in the episode, like people wouldn't have had in ancient times, right? Like they didn't have the knowledge. They weren't the, the ideas on biology definitely weren't there. So I think it'd be kind of cool if we uh, speak to a more more modern case, because obviously people aren't necessarily putting on their critical thinking caps per se. They're still kind of rocking with the Pliny the Elder sort of lens. If you're Mm. wanting to believe in mermaids, because there's a lot of really modern accounts and modern sightings. And one of them, I know you are familiar with Shay. We talked about it a a little bit just on Twitter. I think it was the idea of uh, the Kiryat Yam Israeli mermaid. Right. So I'll just give kind of the basics here and then maybe you can speak to this because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting story, but it's also obviously likely a hoax, but it's the idea that, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean sea, there's this alleged mermaid that seems to, uh, pop up and isn't that shy and sort of comes (laughs) out when there seems to be people there. Uh, and of course resembles the cross between a young girl and a fish. And one of the first witnesses was in 2009. And this was a quote. His name was Shlomo Cohen. And he had this to say. (laughs) It's not a slow-mo. It's a shlomo. It's a (laughs) shlomo. So he said, I was with friends when suddenly we saw a woman lying on the sand in a weird way. At first, I thought she was just another sunbather. But when we approached, she jumped right back into the water and disappeared. We were all in shock because we saw that she had a tail. (laughs) 
<laughs> so maybe you could speak a little bit to this more modern sort of uh, idea of the mermaid. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, uh, something that I wasn't aware of at all, and, and I can't figure out the timeline on this, but there's actually what appears to be a pretty strong mermaid culture in Israel. And mm-hmm. that's the case for a lot of, I think, Western cultures as well. And that is the idea of, you know, doing performance art as a mermaid, doing undersea type, I guess, storylines when you are either free diving or on oxygen and you put on a mermaid tail. Um, and you can also do uh, like photo shoots and, and such. You know, I guess I can't really dive too much into like the psychology of that, but I think a lot of it is people who are drawn to water want something different. And um, it's kind of a, like a cosplay kind of a thing. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really interesting account. Uh, And it was funny because I, you know, I tried to read more about it. It's, it's pretty ambiguous to dig down to the original sightings. There's some YouTube videos of pretty poor acting that, has actually pretty good the cgi is pretty great like the effects are are pretty great but the acting is just so terrible of people supposedly seeing this thing um (laughs) but the town of kuryat yam or however you pronounce it correctly is a it's a medium-sized coastal town in the uh, mediterranean it's about thirty-nine thousand people is what it looks like And as far as I can tell, it's a fairly industrial place. But beginning around that era, they put in this really cool new uh, promenade. And boy, is it convenient and really helpful that there was this mermaid sighting. Uh, And so what I, I feel like maybe happened is this was reported by a local, regardless of what actually happened. And the city picked up on it so quickly. Took a, I have a couple quotes here. This one says, but it was six months ago when the promenade along the sea was completed that the number of sightings reported by residents leapt dramatically. Town town spokesman Natty Zilberman thinks the reward money is well spent, so they offered a $1 million reward for pure evidence of an actual mermaid. And they said, I believe if there really is a mermaid, then so many people will come to Kiryat Yam. A lot more money will be made than $1 million. So you can kind of see some ulterior motives. Like, first of all, they're never going to pay anyone $1 million because, you know, even if if a mermaid was discovered, it probably getting a million dollars from this town that likely doesn't have it is not going to happen. But the other amazing quote that I got was by a person called Oleg Borisov, who was a, a market stall holder. He he believes, of course, he was one of the first people to have contact with the creature mm-hmm. when he and his dog were having a swim. So he has this, you know, he describes as this incredible, terrifying encounter. And then he goes on to say, Mr. Borisov made the connection for sure it was a mermaid, he said, adding that he believed she must have had a message deliver, <laughs> to deliver. There will come a time when she will appear, he said. The Messiah is coming too, soon, too, in 2012. Mm. Well, so it kind of goes down a rabbit hole there um, yeah. <laughs> to kind of the religious aspect. But oh, yeah. he seems yeah, like a character. I kind of like him. Yeah, me a too. market stall holder. Hey? Yeah, <laughs> probably talk your ear off at that stall. Oh probably. yeah, yeah. he's probably selling mermaid-related uh, uh, paraphernalia. I'd imagine. Ooh, I bet. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another road trip right there. There you go. <laughs> We're going all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this has really continued. These sightings and the buzz for this have continued. But I think it came down to you know an initial reporting, and 
a really creative town who is trying to boost their tourism. And it's a really genius move because, you know, folks from Israel maybe wouldn't have visited this town to begin with for tourism. And now I'm sure it's quite popular and, you know, one of those fun, weird side trips that you can take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Almost like uh, all those... Well, we've never done it, but like, you know, like the classic road trip across America where you stop right. at all the roadside attractions and all these weird places <laughs> that just pop out of nowhere and like it's so random a lot of the times. Totally. <laughs> I will say, obviously, this uh, is a very uh, sort of clunky, clunky sort of hoax, like you said, in some of the YouTube videos and stuff like that. But it does at the same time remind me a little bit of uh, some of the lake monster sightings on like the great lakes here in in uh, on the east coast mm. uh, i think it's bessie specifically uh, lake bessie. erie i believe uh, there's there's a whole bunch where basically rewards were offered right like massive rewards like people know they're never going to be able to find it and that nobody would have to pay it but there was still an original sighting that it was based off of before a reward mm-hmm. was offered you know what i mean whereas this just sort of seems to be straight marketing tactics rather than it being like oh wow there's like a legit legend here mm. a real creature in the water, Mm -hmm. which I guess is kind of disappointing, but then I don't know, maybe if we looked deeper into Israel, I, we're going to have to go, you guys. We're just going to have to go and we'll ask have to go. interview. Yeah, we'll have to find Oleg and hang out with him and his dog, and it'll be fun. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think the interesting thing about this, too, is it, it becomes really difficult to disentangle now because of all the marketing that went on. I think even if you wanted to get to the bottom of it, I think people's memories would probably be so blurry at this point as to what actually happened. It'd yeah. be be hard to figure mm-hmm. out. Um, but on another side note, too, there's tons of different marine mammal species that are in the Mediterranean Sea. A lot of the world's top uh, marine mammal science comes out of that region. So that really does bump up the possibility of all kinds of animals that people could be seeing and misidentifying, um, especially when they've been primed to expect a mermaid. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the perfect word to use. Yeah, if you go there expecting to see something, it's kind of like if you're going out in the woods looking for a Sasquatch, <laughs> you might hear a wood knock and it's really just somebody, uh, it's a tree falling over or something or whatever. <laughs> or it's a, it's a woodpecker. Or it's a wood, yeah, <laughs> just noticeably a woodpecker. <laughs> I think I'm ready to kind of get into some, some final thoughts and theories here. We've gone through a bunch of stuff. We have. And I just wanted to kind of like ground ourselves from everything we've talked about today and then maybe have a few sort of final thoughts on what the hell we think we've been dealing with this entire time. The people <laughs> mm-hmm. that genuinely believe mermaids exist in some way, whether cr- purely cryptozoological, which we've sort of established with Shay, is not possible, but possibly sort of a more f- fantastical creature, if exactly. you want to say interdimensional or whatever it may mm-hmm. be. But going back to sort of solid evidence, I guess I would say, air quoting again here for on a podcast. Great job, Andrew. The <laughs> idea of at least some evidence existing of not just the belief, but maybe the idea that people were seeing something. So we mentioned the idea of like, you know, ancient Assyrian legends and things like that from a thousand BC. But other than that, I wasn't really able, I I wasn't able to find Mm. too, too much. I mean, there's some drawings, there's artwork and things like that, but it always seems to just bleed into the mythical and attached to the fantastical, right? Yes. And just on that note too, Going back to, say, more examples rooted in history that goes beyond, say, uh, European history or anything, like, one thing that's really lacking uh, that, uh, to be honest, I didn't even really, it didn't occur to me until right now when we're sitting down here, but I'll have to do my homework after we stop recording, is seeing, trying to dig into some indigenous uh, North American folklore and legends and history relating Mm. to 
aquatic humanoid people. Like, you mm-hmm. know, cause we get into a lot of that when we talk about things like Sasquatch and, and all that, but I don't think, and, and again, right. There are these spirits like Nahatik, uh, Ogopogo in the Okanagan, right. A, a water spirit. Right. But other than that, like humanoid water spirits, like I don't think I can come up with any examples of that. And I always go to the indigenous perspective to ground what mm-hmm. we're talking about in modern times. So for me, that's missing. And I wish we had that. It yeah. almost seems more distinctly Europe, European, I guess. I mean, Shay, what do you think of that? Yeah, so that's a good point. And uh, in recent years, I've actually become more aware of some of these kind of ideas. Uh-huh. Uh, one really beautiful one is from the Siletz tribe of the U.S. West Coast. And that was actually of a sea otter woman um, hybrid. And she was, oh boy, I can't remember if it was essentially the, you know, the queen of the otters. And she was that same kind of Kelpie style of being that uh, she split her time between the ocean and would return to the Siletz people. And uh, it was part of a covenant between the otter people and the humans to be stewards of of their their planet and so what's kind of being said now is with the extermination or extirpation of sea otters on the Oregon coast that covenant has been broken and so sea otter woman no longer returns so it's Mm. really heartbreaking and there are also similar stories of seal and human hybrids up in Alaska from the Inuit people and I think almost almost every kind of um, arctic society so you really have to you have to start broadening perspective of what a mermaid is and mm-hmm. in that capacity it is interesting because a lot of them fall back like i said into that nereid fae folk almost that kind of persephone kind of perspective of of a woman or a being that is cursed to split her time between two worlds she's she's both part of everything but an outsider mm she is self and other all at the same time, essentially. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think that's the most beautiful thing about mermaids to me is, you know, they're easy to dismiss and say it's dumb that people believe in mermaids, you know, or that they love them so much. But really, when you get to it, humans are are built and survive by being storytellers. And a mermaid is both our our dependence on the ocean and the sea and also a representation of a fact that we can never be part of it and I think that's why that mermaid myth persists oh totally and also even just to add to that yeah the the dual nature of it the duality of land water Mm -hmm. self other the idea also that we are looking into something from which we came right something that was our origins and now we're terrestrial beings and I think that we always want to uncover where we've come from. So in a way, maybe this is our way of creating that connection. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. We are, we are born of salt water essentially. And, you know, as a biologist, I always wonder how much actual evolutionary memory we have and how much that um, accounts for a lot of cryptid sightings. When you think about our fear of large birds or beings in caves or Bigfoot like creatures, those really all are types of animals that we, you know, when you think of us interacting with Neanderthals, for example, um, or being prey mammals, it, you wonder how much of that um, secondarily is in our DNA and built into our survival. 
That's really fascinating to (laughs) think, honestly. I'm honestly a little bit hesitant to just jump into this next little thing I added because (laughs) what you've been saying this whole time is so beautiful and I feel like that's a perfect place to end it. But of course, there's people in this world that don't really like to to lean that way. They want to lean the the hardest possible way to justify, basically, Mm -hmm. because I found this really, uh, I'm not even going to say interesting, this curious sort of uh, article that is crazy. And I love your little comment here, Shay. But essentially, it was this idea a few years ago that somebody who was just sort of poking around on Google Earth had found a giant, massive, unidentified frozen sea creature and or mermaid in the ice in the Arctic. (laughs) Now, of course, there's one big massive problem with this right off the bat beyond all the red flags banging up all over the place here. Uh, it's over 65 feet in length when you actually measure it. And this is according to researcher uh, Paul Seaburn, who writes for a Mysterious Universe and a bunch of other stuff. So that is one big ass mermaid. I'm yeah. just going to throw that out there. And of course, it's a mer whale. It, it's a mer whale, exactly. Other people <laughs> in articles were mentioning, like, oh, maybe this, uh, it's not a mermaid, but the the, the mystical the ninjin <gasps> and some of those sort of it's other half giant, giant things. Half whale. <laughs> exactly, right? But of course, this is most likely, you know, I'm going to let you speak to this, Shay, because you had some funny <laughs> things to say. <laughs> Did I? Yeah. I mean, I just looking at it. Um, you know, I tried to like kind of type around Google Earth and I didn't have enough time to really zoom in. But when he zooms out slightly, what you see is like, oh, there's another one like just to the left of it. And for yeah. all intents and purposes, it looks like just an ice rift, mm-hmm. um, the shadow of an ice rift. Um, and what I do have to say with these types of things are, you know, as a both a scientist and also, you know, a researcher, you you have to compartmentalize parts of your brain when you look at these things. So I have my science hat, and I always remember that science um, is sometimes used to explain some of these paranormal topics. But I think something to remember is that science in and of itself is based on repeatability, that you can replicate something, you can go to the greatest source, you know, you can dig down from that Google, Google account to the original poster to, you could take a boat to Antarctica and go look at this giant mermaid creature. And you would be able to say, yeah, sure enough, that's a mermaid. And so when you start using, I don't know how to say it. When you start wildly hand waving with some of these things, you lose, you can't use science as your tool because that's not what science is for or how it works. What you, what you can do is look at these accounts in the cultural and folkloric and biological contents and come up with the best theories. And that being said, I I don't think you should, I think you should be careful about crossing that line too much because you Mm -hmm. either, you know, your, your mind is so open, your brains fall out, or you turn into, you know, that jerk scientist that, you know, doesn't really even listen to these accounts or or understand the social context of them. Um, So that being said, this YouTube video is kind of funny because it, you you just look at it and you're like, well, I don't I don't know, man. And then you click on the account and there's a lot of interesting stuff there put up by that user, uh, mostly yeah. mostly in caps, all caps. Got to get people's attention. <laughs> yeah, and like hundreds of just amazingly strange conspiracy theories. So yeah, I mm. mean, you use your reasoning, and I think the problem is most people wouldn't even go so far as to click on that account. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, kind of like the classic cry- boy who cried wolf. Totally. Yeah. You to stop listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, if what everything he says is true, then like, man, I'm going to just, I need to just pack up my bags and go to the wilderness because I don't oh, even I know, know right? anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the one thing I did find 
that sort of like tickled my fancy, so to speak, or at least like, even though obviously I'm having my critical thinking hat on looking at things like that is this idea that's very much like, you know, dabbling in the idea of like the thing, John Carpenter's the Mm -hmm. thing, like as global warming kind of continues to progress here, what sort of strange, uh, you know, other versions of dinosaurs and things like that, like creatures of this earth, are we going to end up discovering and melting ice sheets and stuff? I think that it sort of prompted that thought for me, even though it is a totally insane conspiracy theory type story. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you, like, what do you think about that? Do you think we'll be finding some bizarre creatures and melting ice potentially in the future? Oh my gosh, I think for sure. You know, it's, and again, it makes me, my heart sad too, because that means that we are losing habitat for a lot of animals that depend on that ice. Um, Mm -hmm. But in Alaska right now, there is a boom in mammoth bones and actual frozen remains, you know, possibly viably clonable remains that are being found. um, And people are out there, um, particularly a lot of local native folks gathering those bones because they're just out there to take. And honestly, if somebody doesn't take them, then they'll just start rotting. Mm -hmm. But when I was in LA this summer, I was super bummed because they actually had an entire exhibit on Antarctic dinosaurs, which would have been so cool. And I mean, granted, you have to think that was during a different climate epoch. So, Mm -hmm, you know, it wasn't like the frozen Arctic at that time or Antarctic. Um, But uh, yeah, I think we're going to continue to discover things. And I think with deep sea exploration, uh, we're able to do more and more uh, deep sea remotely operated vehicle cruises. So if anyone has time, I highly recommend looking up some of these videos of all these alien creatures um, (laughs) that are swimming in our oceans. Oh, actually, we were just looking into that the other day. We watched, uh, what was it, a Nat Geo documentary? Oh, great. Deep sea. And they had all the classics, right? I think it's from about 2013. Yeah. They had uh, the lantern, lanternfish? Lanternfish, yeah. Those are crazy yeah. looking things down there. It was beautiful. And like, they so got great. into like, kind of the differences between the ones that actually like emit these like mm-hmm. spectrums of light versus those that absorb um, and then kind of like shine them out at night kind of thing. I thought it was really fascinating. I had another point. I just thought of something now. And forgive me, guys, because I don't know any of the specifics, but maybe I'll jog your memories. I feel like it was like just in the last couple of years, there was the example of a, I don't know if it was in the Hudson's Bay or if it was off the Atlantic coast in North America, but there was like an iceberg that had something in it and it was like Hmm. half exposed and it was like rotting. It seemed to be something like a whale or something unknown. Weird. And it's very similar to the one that we just touched huh. on. Does does that ring any bells for you guys? I'm not remembering that right That's off the not like head. the Minnesota Iceman, is it? No, okay. no, definitely not okay. that guy. <laughs> I don't know. It was very recent. And it was on the news too. And people were kind of speculating about it because it was kind of slowly emerging as the glacier was moving southward. And I think it was on the Atlantic coast of Canada, but I can't come back to that for a little bonus episode. We will. Yeah. For anyone listening, I'd love to that one. Please let us know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know, but there's a lot of amazing stuff out there. Um, You know, there was a video that came out just this week about a deep sea creature called a siphonophore, which is a colonial animal. They're like these little bells that they found in an ROV cruise and it was almost 200 feet long and it had formed a galaxy shaped hunting posture. So it was, yeah. So it was like thousands of these creatures um, strung together and it 
had strung itself into essentially the, the classic galaxy formation, and they have these stinging cells that dangle in the water, and um, any fish or animals that come up through there, they essentially are, are hunting them. Um, and that's something that's never been seen before, and that just came Easy. out this week. That is so cool. That yeah. We're going to go check that out, like, immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> totally. Hmm. Well, Andrew? I think, like... Did you want to speak to any ideas of hoaxes and things like that? Or do you want to just kind of get into some of our final thoughts? I think I was, you did jog my memory, Shay, the idea of uh, like deep sea stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the mermaids, the body found <laughs> animal planet, the actual first instance where they have the footage of a mermaid put the hand on the window there mm-hmm. essentially in like a deep sea exploration vessel. They're basically saying that these things are that's the reason we haven't been seeing them right so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a silly narrative i guess if you're really wanting it to be believable but it's I, it blew me away how many people believe this like the majority yeah. of people that watch this on tv thought this was a real documentary yeah and i think that was the shame of it you know and and that it was represented in that way i you know i grew up watching discovery and animal planet and all that and and it makes me kind of sad to think if i'd been a kid and misled at that kind of point of view but we had adults asking as well. And yeah. mm-hmm. I, I think it's totally cool to love this stuff, but, you know, remember what context it's in and remember to be, you know, a critical person and, and enjoy it in that capacity. And if, and if you like mermaids, cause they're awesome and they have shimmery hair and they hang out in the ocean then enjoy that. Um, but that doesn't also mean that everything else is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. You sure. can suspend your disbelief, but yeah. only so far, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I guess on that note, I mean, if people, yeah, if you watch it and you know it's not real, uh, it can get you interested in folklore and you can at least start dabbling. Yeah, you can you can start oh, looking yeah. at stuff. I guess we're kind of down to our, our sort of final thoughts. Normally we say final thoughts and theories. <laughs> I don't know if I have any theories per se, but I'll throw that out to Amber for your sort of final thoughts on mermaids or if you have any sort of final comments to make. Oh. Final comments, final thoughts. I really don't have any theories. This is all purely in the realm of the fantastical to me. And I do think that we can point to, like we did right off the bat, right? The idea of seafaring culture and people aboard boats for very long times. You can go a little crazy. Things can happen. You can get really bored or just start to imagine things that perhaps aren't there. Or maybe they are there, but you're seeing them. differently (laughs) right yeah you're not seeing a manatee you're seeing a beautiful woman apparently (laughs) the mind sees what it wants to and a lot of the times we mentally fill in the gaps that we're expecting so again like i i just think this is fascinating i love it yeah and i want to dive into more of those like the zimbabwe ones that we discussed really briefly there i think that would be really fun (laughs) totally before i throw it out to you shay i guess i would say for myself that like I agree with Amber and I agree with you this entire time. The idea of mythology and folklore being mostly the basis for a lot of this stuff. But then it always reminds me of things like, you know, lake monster mysteries. And that's sort of similar in the sense that it's aquatic, right? And the idea that there's no evidence found, you know, there's sightings that people have, but we have no conclusive evidence. But it seems for some reason less fantastical. So I guess guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, I do feel that there has to be some sort of hardcore basis for this that maybe isn't just, you know, a drunk Christopher Columbus seeing a manatee <laughs> or people out at sea for a year or two years and going completely crazy. Maybe there is something out there that isn't a mermaid, isn't half woman, half fish, but potentially something, 
different, at least, that we haven't identified yet, which I think is pretty fascinating. Or even just to speak to that a little bit further, things that at the time of the sighting hadn't been identified. So they were totally foreign, totally new to these people. They had never seen them before and had no prior knowledge. So you kind of, again, right, you kind of make up your own explanation a little bit. Yeah. I definitely want to believe, that's for sure. (laughs) What are your sort of final thoughts for this episode, Shay? Yeah, same. Well, first of all, this was so much fun, and I'm so glad we did this. So, yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I would, I'm in the same boat, you know, I I love it. I love this stuff. And I think that uh, if people, if this fits into the culture of a particular place and really helps us understand and love our natural world more. I I think it's something that, you know, we should celebrate. You know, I will say, you know, keep your, keep your wits about you when you start dabbling (laughs) into mermaids, because, um, you know, we don't totally understand our natural world. And I think more than anything, we don't understand our own brains and how we perceive, you know, the universe around us. So, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of people that see strange things and, you know, who knows to them in whatever that moment was, that could be exactly what they perceived. So uh, I think the the most important message on my end is to to love your oceans and to love your ocean creatures. Man, just start looking up weird ocean animals, because I guarantee that, you know, you're going to find something that you love out there that is just absolutely amazing. Um, like one of my favorite sea creatures is the vampire squid, uh, oh, who's who's <laughs> is actually quite friendly, but its uh, scientific name is the Vampire Toothless Infernalis. And it's this red, spiky-looking squid that has a bunch of, like, teeth-like appendages uh, under its, its bell, essentially. But you know, I think the ocean is full of these amazing creatures. And, uh, you know, if you want to look into mermaids, that's that's great. But, you know, don't lose the forest for the trees. So right. I mm. guess, I don't know, just enjoy it. But just uh, be careful of those YouTube videos, I guess. I think that's yeah. a good message uh, <laughs> for overall cryptozoology. I'm really glad that you, mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of your final thing to say, because we definitely agree. And we can go down rabbit holes and kind of end up yeah, I mean, not for for a moment believing things that, you know, just because we want to, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, and then you have and, to restrap on the critical thinking cap. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly it. And, and sometimes it's hard to and you're like, you don't want to. And you're like, I think that speaks more to the human condition, right, um, than anything else. And it, it says a lot about ourselves versus the exterior world around us. <laughs> and if we keep this mentality, if we if we if we have those critical thinking skills, that is where we're going to be able to find monsters, I think, right? Like that's where we'll actually be able to discover new things. Um, people like you doing amazing work, Shay. So that's really, really cool. And we mm-hmm. really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been awesome. Did you want to let the listeners know like where they can kind of like find your work? I mean, we're definitely going to post your, your article, obviously in our notes, Yeah. maybe follow you on your socials and things like that. Yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at seal scientist. Uh, and uh you know, it's funny. I don't have too many other things out there at this moment. I uh, I do have that fishful thinking article out there, and uh, I'm currently in the process of resubmitting a proposal for a book that I almost had accepted a while ago. Uh, awesome. But I know, um, but I had to rework it a little bit. So hopefully, in the future, I can um, you know send that your guys's way and maybe Definitely. talk about it. But oh, uh, love that. yeah, it should be pretty fun. So. Um, yeah, you're welcome to find me on Twitter and um, 
I guess I'm I'm on Instagram at Marine Cowgirl. Um, Marine like the ocean and cowgirl like I grew up in Wyoming. Um, but that's mainly just photos of uh, my pet bunnies and cats and some ocean things mixed in. So what everyone right wants, right? Like, that's yeah, what I need, needs I need more of that in my life. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, you guys, I mean, we really appreciate you listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And we want to hear what you think about mermaids. I mean, where do you stand as far as mermaids go? I mean, we could just ask the broad question, do you believe or not? But if you have anything more specific to say, we're really interested. Do you have your own sighting to report? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Where are you in the world? Are mermaids a prominent aspect of culture where you're from? Let us know. So you can hit us up at into uh, the portal mailbox at gmail.com if you want to just send us a, a direct email our socials are at into the portal podcast on instagram at into the portal one on twitter and we're super active on there so come chat with us you guys mm-hmm. that's about it that's about a wrap so until next time on into the portal your gateway to the bizarre Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.